The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Spectator TV. Just over three months ago, Liz Truss left 10 Downing Street, and since then she has said nothing. In an article for the Sunday Telegraph, she has detailed what she thinks went wrong in number 10 and what next for the Conservative Party. I'm Katie Balls, I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, and we bring you Liz Truss's first interview since leaving Downing Street. Thank you for joining Spectator TV today, Liz. Great to be here. So I suppose to begin, why now? Well, of course, after I left number 10, I needed to take a bit of time to look at what had happened. Because I went in there after a very intense leadership election. In fact, after quite an intense period as Foreign Secretary as well, we faced immediate issues dealing with the energy crisis. There was then the very sad death of Her Majesty the Queen. We then had the budget uh, and all the aftermath of that. So I wanted to take some time to look at what happened and look at what lessons I could learn, what lessons we could learn, because clearly I went into number 10 with a bold agenda. I wanted to change things. That's why I put myself forward to be prime minister. And that didn't work out. Although there were some things that we managed to achieve, namely the energy package, which prevented people facing very high bills that winter. And I believe stopped a lot of businesses going out of business. We also were able to get rid of the health and social care levy and eliminate that from our tax system. There were other things that didn't go so well. And so I wanted to take time to think about it to look at what had happened. And there were particular issues, for example, around liability-driven investments that caused the markets to be quite tricky. So I wanted to take time to consider that. And that's why I've written the article, really explaining from my point of view, what it felt like at the time, why I took the decisions I took, and what we, what we now need to do. And I suppose before we get to uh, uh, your time at number 10, you say in the article that you always thought it'd be crazy to depose Boris Johnson. And it meant when that did happen, um, you didn't feel as though you actually really had the infrastructure in place. uh, But all of a sudden, uh, you didn't see anyone uh, making the economic argument that you thought should be being made. So you throw your hat in the ring. But I suppose given the scale and how much you wanted to change, did it feel then that you were uh, unprepared or I suppose fighting against the clock? Well, it always felt like it was a big challenge. And since I've been a government minister, I was a government minister for 10 years, I've been fighting some of these battles. I didn't support the rise in national insurance. I wanted to do things like childcare reform, way back when I was in the education department. And, you know, there were other areas that, you know, we had discussions about inside government, whether those were trade deals, uh, whether it was our foreign policy. I knew there was a battle to be had. And I also knew 
that there was a very, very tough situation that we faced as a country with the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, the aftermath of COVID. And, you know, I think one of the things I underestimated was this the sort of scale of the orthodoxy. So during the leadership election campaign, I talked about the Treasury orthodoxy. I talked about the fact that we'd ended up in a situation where we had the highest taxes for 70 years. We had quite big government. Uh, so I believed it was doable, but I knew it would be tough. I just probably didn't realise quite how tough. And I just think after being in government for 10 years, you, you, know, you then sort of get into the campaign and it was a sort of conveyor belt, if you like. And we were spending time just thinking, how do we fight this stage of the campaign? What do we need to do now? So it's only afterwards I've been able to look back and just say, that was an incredibly intense year. A lot of people would think that it's, if we've given you a prime minister, you can do pretty much under the British system. You've got control of the government. You might not be able to pass the laws you want, but you can control the system. But you say in your article that um, I assumed upon entering Downing Street, my mandate would be respected and accepted how wrong I was. What do you mean by that? See, what I mean is, first of all, there are forces within within the government itself and the wider institutional structure that have a given point of view. You know, they have a point of view which isn't necessarily the point of view of the elected government. And I've, I've seen that you know, in every government department I've worked in. You know, for example, the view of Brexit uh, by part of Whitehall or you know, the view of reform to institutions. So I've always known that there is there is system resistance and you know there always is. Every democracy has institutions or people who have a particular point of view that doesn't agree uh, with the elected government. And I also think the political support I had during the my time in number 10, you know, it wasn't enough to achieve the type of bold reforms I was looking to achieve. So it was a combination, if you like, of the economic orthodoxy, which, you know, for more than 10 years, we've had relatively cheap money, you know, low interest rates, relatively high government spending. And, you know, there's been a variety of factors that have caused that. COVID is a good example, and relatively high taxes. And that has, but also not diverging from the EU, not doing some of the deregulatory stuff that might have got growth going more. So those attitudes were part of the system at the same time as, as I say, the, the level of political support required to maybe change some of those attitudes wasn't there. That's, that's what I found. And can you give an example in ways in which you encountered this resistance? I mean, it's a little bit hard to imagine from, from the outside. From the outside, it seems you can do what you want. But how did this manifest itself? So, I mean, take the, take the sort of case in point, the mini budget mm. and the aftermath of the mini budget. So, I mean, there are other issues connected with the mini budget, particularly the LDIs and what was happening in the bond market. This is the pension funds and the assets yeah. within them, yeah. So that was, 
Uh, that was a separate issue, which mm. which I can talk about in a minute if you like. But the mm. so I think it was particularly the issue around the OBR forecast. Mm. So what the OBR does is it operates independent from government, essentially at arm's length, predicting how much a gap there will be in five years' time for a given target, so getting debt falling. So the OBR predicted, and the, the predictions varied over time, between a 50 and a 70 billion pound gap. What that means as the elected government, if you want to have credibility, you have to show how you'll fill the gap. So that gives you less room for manoeuvre over tax and spending policy than you might think you have as Prime Minister and Chancellor, because essentially a outside agency is determining the envelope you operate in. And I think it's one of the reasons we have put up corporation tax and why it's quite difficult to cut in the current circumstance is because of that forecasting process. But isn't it a case that the government sets the fiscal rules? It sets its own rule. And then the OBR will say whether you're likely to meet your rules. So in the way, the OBR isn't really telling you how much to borrow or how much you can spend. It's simply saying, is this government likely to meet its own test? So first of all, it makes assumptions about what policies are deliverable or not deliverable. So that gives the OBR a certain amount of power over whether or not particular items will be scored in the forecast or not, i.e. whether they will count. It's also able to assess how much, you know, if you raise tax rates, how much revenue will that raise? So my view on corporation tax, for example, is raising it significantly isn't likely to increase revenues as much as expected because you can see a reduction in business investment, a reduction in activity. But it's up to the OBR what assumptions they make about that. Likewise, they make assumptions about economic growth. So there's a lot of power in determining those assumptions about, in terms of what the end result of the forecast is and therefore what the government has to aim for. And previously, that was all done in-house in the Treasury. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other issues isn't just the forecasting process and the, the fact that it's very difficult to forecast the future. It's very difficult to predict what's happening five years out. But it's not just that. It's also the fact that the forecasts aren't done alongside of developing the policy in the Treasury. So essentially, the forecasting process has been outsourced. And I think that's also difficult for ministers who are coming up with policy, because it's a independent process. But does that actually constrain you? I'm trying to work out here if you're saying that the way, if you say you disagree with the OBR about the effect of tax cuts, you might think that it will have more of an effect on the economy than they do. But can you not say, well, you know what, I disagree with you, I'm doing it anyway? The OBR and, you know, is its position is taken very seriously by the market. So it effectively mm. constrains what what the government can do. And by the way, I understand completely why the OBR was introduced. Mm. You know, it's very important that forecasts are honest, but I think we have ended up in a place where they're done so you know, they're done separately of government that it ends up driving fiscal policy. So what we've seen is 
corporation tax has been increased as a result of having to fill the hole of a forecast predicted by the ABR. That's, that's, that, that has become the reality of the, of the system. I'm not saying that we should go back to the old ways of you know, somebody putting their finger in an air, the air, but I think there needs to be more discussion around the assumptions that are being made in the models and more opportunity for the government itself to be creating the forecasts. And on deliverability, which you mentioned, is that the OBR looking at whether they think the Tory party MPs will back these measures? Is, is that a factor too? Well, that, I mean, it's really a question you should yeah. ask the OBR yeah. rather than me, <laughs> yeah. but it is exactly the sort of question I think should be able to be asked. Yeah. You know, what are these assumptions based on? If you're looking at tax cuts that you think might lead to growth or supply side reforms, why have those assumptions been made? And my, my view, and I say this in the article, is that the way the model works, which is essentially a pretty static model, tends to favour raising taxes over reducing spending. It tends to favour short-term measures over long-term measures. And a lot of the supply-side reforms like you know, changing the planning system or putting in the investment zones or childcare reforms to make childcare cheaper for working parents, those are all things that take time to work through. And I think the way that the system works at the moment mitigates against those types of measures. So if you're a government looking at the, you know, balancing the books over a period of time, the tax measures are the, you know, become the the ones to do that will actually deliver on the timescale. Now, we want to talk about the, the mini budget, but I just wondered, uh, probably in the, in the build up to it, when you were criticised for not going to the OBR ahead of it. And you were also criticised with uh, axing Tom Scholar as permanent secretary in the Treasury, um, which I think when things started to get quite jumpy after the mini budget, you said, you know, those are things that had added to this sense of spooking the markets. Do you regret either of those decisions? Well, I mean, if we look at the what happened, first of all, as soon as I got into office, we had an immediate issue of energy bills. So people were anticipating energy bills of up to £6,000 that winter. We had a lot of businesses that could potentially go out of business because of the scale of the expected energy price spike. And we knew we had to act before the bills went out in October. Otherwise, we would have had a very serious winter crisis. That's why the first thing we did was act on energy bills. And we did that within the first few days of getting into Downing Street. And that was, that was the biggest part of the mini budget. I mean, 60%, the energy cost was 60% of the mini budget. You might even call that borrow and spend rather than tax cuts. Well, what it was, was it was offering a guarantee mm. that if prices went over a certain level, the government would essentially share the risk with consumers and with business because, frankly, the government had failed to act 20 years ago to make sure there were sufficient independent energy supplies and we'd become dependent on the, on the global market price. But I'm very clear that if we hadn't acted, we would have seen a big drop in business confidence, it, real, real issues with people not being able to afford their energy bills and fearing 
their energy bills. Could you have targeted a bit better? I mean, you ended up with millionaires being subsidised under your system. Well, the the answer is we did look at that those types of options, but we couldn't deliver it with the systems the government had. That's <laughs> you, know, you don't live in a perfect world. We lived in a world of being able to do something comprehensive that would reassure businesses and consumers or not being able to tackle the level that we had. But I think we've seen since coming up with a targeted scheme is really difficult. And we didn't necessarily have the systems at the time to be able to deliver it in time for October, because that's, you know, got into government in September and the bills were arriving in October. Then Her Majesty the Queen sadly died. In fact, she died on the day we made the energy announcement. So on the day we made the energy announcement, we promised, because we hadn't given a costing for it, we promised that we'd come back, have a fiscal event and give the costing. So that essentially set the date for the mini budget, which is why we had to act quickly, because otherwise we would have had the open-ended costing. The markets would have been concerned that we didn't know what we were spending. That's why we had to do the mini budget when we did it, when we did it then. And if we'd left it any longer, we would have had other problems. I think it's, it's one of these things in these scenarios that you never know what the counterfactual looks like. But the counterfactual, if we hadn't acted, would, would we went into winter with people expecting £6,000 energy bills and not reversing the national insurance rise, which I'd said I would do. And it was a key part of my campaign pledge was reversing the national insurance revise and not raising corporation tax. And I felt that was very important to get the economy growing. And what I'd said during the leadership campaign is I wanted to be bold. I wanted to take action. Britain had been had relatively slow growth for over a decade. And as a country, we weren't going to get on the right trajectory by continuing with the high levels of tax. So that's that's why I acted. I mean, the, the key thing we didn't know about was the LDI issue. And... Now, although there were issues with the mini budget, and I'm happy to talk about that, you know, what, what I've subsequently discovered is the problems in the bond market preceded the mini budget. You say in your article that you were shocked to discover the size of the problem of these liability-driven investments, LDIs, that the assets were something like 60% of GDP. And that this was, in your language, what a delicate tinderbox you were dealing with. Um, now, if our pension funds were so sensitive to um, changes in, in interest rates. And if this was a tinderbox, as you say, is this something that you wish you'd been warned about earlier on? And if you had known how big a self-sensitive an issue, would it have changed how you approached the budget? So the, the answer is yes. We would have done things differently if we'd known about this issue. Because the day before the mini-budget, you know, there was the announcement by the... Bank of England about interest rates. There's also an announcement about bonds. And there were already movements in the bond market. What we didn't understand is the fragility caused by these liability-driven investments. And essentially, what it meant was that small movements or movements, rapid movements in the market could result in 
cash calls happening and essentially a chain reaction. That's what we didn't understand. And if, if we'd known that beforehand, we certainly would have, you know, maybe moved the mini budget or waited a few days to see what happened. It was the, it was the confluence of those different events, I think, that made it particularly difficult. And that's why, you know, on the Monday, the governor of the Bank of England intervened specifically on the LDI issue. Probably there should have been better communication as well. I mean, it's, but it was something I simply did not know about. I didn't know the existence of LDIs, which turned out to be the main problem uh, the following week. Do you think somebody should have um, flagged this up as such a big issue? I mean, do you think the Bank of England, which is, I guess, is in charge of regulating this, could have um, said, look, interest rates are going up world over. Britain's rather uniquely exposed because of the nature of our final salary pension schemes and the way that these LDIs respond to the, the bond rates. I mean, did you feel that, that you were basically not briefed and as a result of not being briefed properly, you made decisions which you would otherwise not have made? I mean, of course, this is really a matter for the Chancellor rather than the Prime Minister. But my understanding is he wasn't informed of this either. And I do think it's something that should have been better understood and communicated. As I said, we were being driven by the urgency of sorting out the situation with the energy markets and making sure we implemented our tax pledges so that they could start having a positive impact on the economy because we were very concerned about a potential recession. We were very concerned about the cost of energy. So that was our driving factor. And our assumption was that we'd worked up these plans with Treasury officials, that if there had been a major problem, it would have been it would have been flagged to us, yes. But as I say, I think the specific point you've made, Fraser, that's for that's for others to answer who know more about the financial regulatory system. Uh, rather than rather than me in my role. It, 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 in your article, you say it was the LDIs that brought your premiership to an abrupt and premature end. Well, I think that was the, it was the fragility of the market. I'm not, by the way, saying that I got everything right. Mm. You know, absolutely not. Uh, the communication wasn't good enough. I didn't have good enough infrastructure. The whole... The whole process of the, you know, going straight from being foreign secretary at what was an extremely, extremely busy time through the leadership campaign into number 10, it wasn't ideal for the level of preparation infrastructure building that we needed to do. But, but what I'm saying is that I think without that LDI issue, mm. things might well have been different. And... Knowing about it would have been helpful. Yeah, though I suppose um, when you think about the Treasury, removing a long-standing permanent secretary, you might have some of that institutional knowledge. It means that perhaps there's, you're making it harder to, or you're reducing some of the opportunities to, to get some of that. Or increasing the market jitters that you refer to in your article. I mean, I think it's important that you know, the Chancellor or other government ministers are able to make sure they've got the officials around them that they feel will support the policies that they are, or you know, put in place the measures that support in policy. 
I'm sure we're not saying that there's only one person at the Treasury who knows who knows what's going on. That doesn't seem uh, that doesn't seem credible to me. And it, the issue, and and I point to this in the article. I'm not accusing any individual of you know being deliberately difficult or anything like that. What I'm saying is there has been an overall approach on. British economic policy for the past 15 years that is an orthodoxy. And we were actively seeking to challenge that orthodoxy. And I explicitly said that during the leadership campaign. And I think one of the things I didn't realise is just how strong the orthodoxy was and how embedded around the system it was. So, you know, on the point about communication, yes, you know, we should have had better communication but we were in essence relying on a system who didn't necessarily share our approach. That, and that is a difficult position to be in. It wasn't just in Britain though, you had the IMF, you even had Joe Biden passing comment on your policies. Was it surprised to get that level of international commentary? Well, particularly as the IMF now seem to have taken the reverse position and say we should have cut taxes, whereas they said we shouldn't cut taxes back uh, back in the autumn. But I think it reflects a drift right across the free world towards what are essentially more socially democratic policies, you know, higher taxes, higher spending, bigger government, relatively low interest rates and cheap money. And that it's no doubt that those of us on the side of politics who believe in smaller government, free markets, have not been winning the argument. I mean, that's the other thing I would say, alongside the specific issues around the LDIs, alongside the, you know, the communications issues we had, there is also the weather's changed. The weather's changed. And what I found was trying to make those arguments that low taxes are a good thing, that they'll help attract investment into Britain, that that will drive economic growth, that that economic growth will benefit everybody. Those arguments didn't fall on particularly fertile ground. Including that, in your own party? Including in my own party. But I think, you know, broadly across the media, the arguments that we might have made 20 years ago that were taken for granted are no longer, are no longer readily, readily believed. Were you surprised that the President of the United States specifically criticised your tax policy? I was, yes. What were you doing when you found out? (laughs) It was quite a busy time, Katie, so I can't remember (laughs) exactly what I was doing. But we'd been through the very difficult death of Her Majesty the Queen and the funeral. I'd actually been over and met uh, President Biden at the UN and we were then dealing with the issues of energy, but also dealing with very serious security issues, Russian saber rattling. So I didn't really have time to sort of call President Biden or get concerned about his comments because we needed to do, we needed to deliver in what was a very difficult situation. And just on the mini budget, before I think obviously we move on from that, there were just two things I wondered. Which was the first is. I mean, you served under three different prime ministers. Um, you know how much events can take over. Uh, you know, people's agendas have to go to one side. So 
Did you feel that, uh, you think about the number of measures you put in, did you feel as though you, you needed to do everything quite quickly because you only had you know, 18 months, two years to the next election? Was that, was that a factor when you were deciding what to put in it? Well, I think, I think it's worth pointing out that the vast majority of the mini budget was the energy package plus the two measures that I'd announced during the leadership campaign, reversing national insurance and keeping corporation tax low. And a lot of people refer to unfunded tax cuts. What we were talking about is not raising taxes. That's what we were by and large talking about. And the other measures were fairly small in the general in the general scheme of things. So the vast bulk of the mini budget were things that had already been that already been heavily trailed. But, but one of them was politically huge, and that was the 45p tax. I mean, relatively small in the size and the cost of your budget. Mm. But when it comes to political issues, it's absolutely enormous, isn't it? Well, so so it proved, Fraser. Mm. So it so it proved. I mean, the way the way we looked at it is we wanted to be as clear as possible that Britain was open for business. We wanted to attract investment. We wanted to attract people to the United Kingdom. We want to attract business. And we also wanted to make sure that everybody right across the income scale you know, had the opportunity, had the incentive to, to work and to, to participate in the economy. I mean, that's, the, that's why we did it. I think economically, it was absolutely the right thing to do. I appreciate what you say about the politics and perhaps I underestimated the political, the political impact it had. But you know, it's back to what Katie was saying. I was very, very worried about the economic position of the United Kingdom. We were very concerned about energy costs, but also about an impending rece- recession. And we needed to show we were delivering, which is why things like the investment zones, we wanted to get on with those straight away so that people would start seeing the spades in the ground, see their local communities changing, see things happening. That's why we wanted to do it last autumn, so that because these things take time. And I'm aware of it, you know, tax cuts take time to come through, business investment decisions. You know, once you've announced your corporation tax policy, it takes a while before companies make the investment decision to locate in the UK. So it was why it was important to do it fairly early on uh, for precisely those reasons. For the reasons you just laid out, do you regret putting the 45p rate in, in that mini budget? Well, I mean, look, we could all think different things with hindsight and perhaps perhaps it was a, it was a bridge too far. But I'm not convinced that it was a sort of magic bullet that everything would have been fine if we hadn't done that. Because, you know, I thought it was quite significant that after there were more market wobbles and we reversed the 45p tax decision relatively soon, we were essentially forced to reverse the position on corporation tax. So Mm. although, you know, maybe it was a step too far, I, you know, who knows, we can all... You know, you can all do different. This is my point about counterfactuals. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's easy to say. Um, I still believe it's the right. I still believe it's the right thing to do for Britain. You know, during the vast majority of Labour government, we had a forty p top tax rate. The problem is though that it goes back to the point about why have we not won the argument for the past ten years mm. about keeping taxes low 
giving people more control of their own money, cutting business regulation. Why have we not won those arguments? Because we have tried to placate, you know, a lot of the the distributionists. And those are people in Britain who think the pie isn't going to get any bigger. The only economic debate is about how we divide it between different people. I fundamentally don't agree with that. I think if you have lower taxes right across the board, the country becomes more successful and that benefits everybody. And I think that's the argument we fundamentally haven't won. It Was I trying to fatten the pig on market day? Maybe. You know, there's a long history of failing to make the case. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's what I'm thinking now. I'm thinking, how can, how can we make that argument? Because it certainly isn't going to make our country successful in the long term, having ever higher taxes, always having the argument that you can't cut the... It's never a good time to cut the top rate of tax, is the reality. No. And then, I mean, after the mini-budget, and we've spoken about now the reasons, obviously, it went wrong for, for various uh, factors. But it feels at that point, that's when the premiership really takes a turn. You get to a Tory conference. I'm not sure um, how you would describe your Tory conference. Um, so I think... <laughs> It didn't look the most... Um... Well, you never know. I mean, the thing about doing the job is you never know what it looks like from the outside because you're consumed by you know, doing, uh, doing what you have to do. I think it was very difficult. It was very difficult when we had to... Probably the week after the conference when we had to reverse elements of the mini-budget. And then I was in a position of, rather than pursuing my policy agenda, trying to avoid... Yeah, a serious market meltdown, which is why I had to do what I had to do. But yes, I think you know, after after we had to make those changes, it was a it was a very difficult position I was in. Perhaps the biggest change you made was um, losing Quasi Quartang, one of your most longest-standing political allies. That must have been a very difficult decision. It was very difficult. It was very difficult, and you know, reversing. Reversing the measures in the mini budget as well that we thought were right was very difficult. The two of you didn't disagree on anything, did you? As far as I can work out. No. Yet he still had to go. The, you know, I'm. I can't. I can't say it was anything but extremely difficult. But he was in Washington at the time at the um, IMF meeting. And you know, I was getting some very serious warnings from senior officials that the, you know, there could be a potential market meltdown the following week if I didn't take action. And I needed to do as much as I could to indicate that things were different. And that's why I took the decision I did. And I, I weighed it up, you know, I weighed it up in my mind about whether I needed to do that. But the reality was I couldn't, in all conscience, risk risk that situation. In terms of what you were hearing happen with yes. the economy? But did you, did you think then that basically, at what point did you think, well, my premiership is probably over, I might be playing for time now, but it's, because if, if your chancellor was doing what you asked him, when he goes, doesn't your authority go with it? Well, yes, and I think that was probably the case. 
But I don't know. In, in the, just in terms of, so obviously looking back from where we're sitting now, I can see that. At the time, I was just thinking, how do I make sure there's not a market meltdown? So I wasn't really focused on my long-term future. I was focused on making sure the country wasn't in a serious situation. And I mean, we can talk a lot about the criticism, you know, um, lettuces, et cetera, et cetera, all the time. But what was it like at that point? I mean, what personal toll was it taking on you? Um, it was tough. It was absolutely tough. But I think when you're in those types of situation, you just have to focus on what needs to be done. So, and I am a focused person. So I sort of just got on with it. Got on with it. And you know, I went in with a very clear agenda about what we needed to deliver. You know, all kinds of events took place, uh, which you know, I wasn't expecting and Quasi wasn't expecting, frankly. And we had to deal with the fallout of that. And I think one of the, one of the issues was, because we were so new in government, Dealing with the fallout of something like the LDI crisis that we didn't know about was very difficult. So people said, well, why aren't you communicating? But the fact is, we didn't know about the issue. We didn't necessarily understand the issue. And that is a difficult uh, position to be in as, as, as PM and Chancellor. I think by the end of the period, you know, I wanted to make sure that the markets were stable. You know, because... At my heart, I'm a patriot. I don't want, you know, I want Britain to be successful. I certainly don't want us to get in a position where there is a meltdown. And so that was that was my focus. And if you say what what personal toll did it take on me? I mean, it was tough, but it was, you know, I just got on with it. And I suppose just a final thing on on losing your chancellor. I mean, there are reports at the time he found out on Twitter on the way to meet you. Um, and then, I, I mean, I wanted to say, are, are the pair of you, given you have, you know, you've written books, a book together in the past, are you, are you back on, you know, uh, friendly terms? <laughs> Look, I, I can't quasi as a friend and, you know, what, what happened wasn't, you know, it was a difficult decision and I, you know, was it the right decision? It's very hard to uh, it's very hard to tell, but I had to make sure I was doing everything to 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 deal with the very serious situation we're in. But I had yeah, fun. Yeah, so you went in a matter of days and thinking, okay, I've got these forces of um, uh, conservatism, shall we say, small c against me. I'm going to overcome them. I'm going to make the radical arguments. Mm. I mean, the OBR they might not agree with me, but somebody needs to break the deadlocks. So you were in that mindset. In the um, in the mini budget, indirectly afterwards, um, I remember meeting Quasi um, on that evening, and he was saying that the markets are wobbling, but they'll calm down eventually. And you can you can see the argument for that, mm. but that switched pretty quickly from that to people telling you, "Look, Prime Minister, this is really serious. You're going to face a meltdown. You're going to, have to lose your chancellor." And you would have gone from first of all thinking, "Well, I'm going to prove these guys wrong," to thinking, "Actually, I better do what they say." Yes. <laughs> That's a, a good summary of the situation. It's a good, it's a good summary of the situation. And as I say, if um, if we known about things, we could have prepared better. But I don't think we could have delayed putting the measures in. 
I think that's an important point to make just because of the very serious economic situation we were in vis-a-vis the energy prices. And you say that perhaps it was a moment you lost your chance that you realised, you know, you could perhaps see the writing on the wall. When you decided to step down, um, I think Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922, has praised you for, of, the, of all the various conversations he's had in recent times with prime ministers on the, on the way out, um, someone who, who did not fight it as some of uh, the predecessors did. But the night before, there was a, you know, a very messy Commons vote um, on fracking. At what point did you think, actually, you know, I tried, I've been trying to keep the show on the road as best if I stepped down? Was it that evening? I think it had been uh, sort of, I was becoming more aware of just how difficult it was. I think once I'd appointed the new chancellor and we'd had to change the policies, which was a reaction to the market pressure, as you say. I thought at that point it was difficult for me to continue for much because I'd my whole campaign, the whole reason I stood for the leadership was to pursue a different economic policy. That was my motivation. I mean, that was, you know, that was my motivation for getting involved in politics in the first place. So I think Past that, it was quite difficult, but I didn't want to sort of drop the ball or leave leave anybody in the lurch. You talk quite a lot about the apparatus. I guess you're referring to your, your personal apparatus around you, but when it comes to trying to making winning the arguments for, for low tax, for the growth agenda, mm. um, one of the themes of your articles is that the, that the, the pro-growth side, if you want to call it that, doesn't have the apparatus. You see, even the resistance inside the Conservative Party to move to a lower tax, less regulated economy is pretty significant. Now, if a Conservative Party doesn't believe in lower tax and lower regulation, if a Conservative Party effectively weren't on your side, pretty big problem winning this argument. I mean, it's always been the case that the Conservative Party has been a broad church. Mm. And we've always had this debate. It's not a new, it's not a new discussion within the Conservative Party. But I do think that if you look at the arguments that led up to the Thatcher government, if you look at the the think tanks that were established, the intellectual movement, the sort of Hayaks, the Freedmans, all of that was more part of the public consciousness. It was more part of the... So it's not... It's not the Conservative Party per se. It's where we are in the battle of ideas. And I think that is where we have lost ground. If you look at opinion polling, people are more in favour of higher taxes now than they were in 2010. I think COVID has had a big impact on the role of government. I think people expect government to do more. I think there's an expectation that government will step in in a way there wasn't before. And of course, if you're like me, if you believe that people should be free to live their lives that you don't like government telling them what to do, then that is a difficult a difficult position to be in. And I think the Conservative Party is a reflection. I mean, it's a, it's a two-way discussion, but the Conservative Party, the media, the sort of broader sort of public sphere, I do think has not moved in a, in a free market direction. Is that something which you can maybe help change now? 
well, I want to help change it. Absolutely. And look, there are people, there are people who do, who do agree. And you know, I've had a lot of people get in touch with me saying you know, to varying idea, varying degrees, what, what you were doing, you were trying to do the right thing. So I think there is, there are people who support this, understand this, but we need to be better at making the argument. We need to think about making the argument. Obviously, I've got more time available now to think about these things and, and make the argument, and that's what I want to do. There will also be some people who will be listening, watching this, and saying, well, actually, look at, look at the way your premiership ended. Look at um, the, the market turmoil. Um, you know, perhaps those people had to renew their mortgages at that time. And yes, there were global factors. Um, and they'll be saying, well, are you the right person to be making the case for growth? And I wonder, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, on the mortgage point, I do want to address this because the, we've been living in a very low interest rate world and mortgage rates have been going up. And the reason there was a specific issue around you know, the time we're talking about in September, a lot of it is to do with the liability-driven investments and the impact they had on the market. So I don't think it's fair to blame you know, interest rate rises on on, on what we did. I think that's unfair. The Bank of England um, said it was a 50-50 mix. I think they showed a graph saying half of it was global factors, half of it was UK factors. I mean, would you think that's... But I'm not saying... But on the UK factors, I don't believe... Well, are, I believe there are other UK yeah, right. factors apart from... So there were, there were more about the pension issues than there were UMG budgets. Well, I'm just saying mm-hmm. that that that, you know, that is definitely an issue. And, of course, we, we are seeing mortgage rates go up. But on your question about... You know, Nobody would be more delighted than me, Katie, if there were lots of other people coming forward and making these arguments. I would be more than delighted to have other people go out there and make the case. But the fact is there aren't enough people making the case full stop. And I believe that I've learned a lot in my time in government. I understand what some of the pitfalls are. I've been through the mill on this. And we do need to do things differently and we need to look at how we do things because whatever people's critique might be of my time in government, the fact is we have had relatively low economic growth for over a decade. And that has a direct impact on everybody in Britain. It has an impact on people of all incomes and the... You know, if you look at GDP per capita, we are falling behind other countries. So there's no doubt there's a problem. And what the solution isn't is the solution isn't, in my view, putting up taxes or restricting business more. The, the, the solution has to be about Britain growing faster and becoming more competitive. But so you- if there are other people that want to you know, put that case across, great. But didn't your premiership prove a deficit finance tax cuts are not the answer? Isn't that the moral of a list trust premiership? Well, I, I don't agree that with your, the premise of your question because what we were talking about on corporation tax is not raising corporation tax. The problem is that because we don't have, in my view, sufficiently dynamic forecasting, the prediction was that that would cost money. And it was the direct relationship of the OBR forecast with the market Mm -hmm. that's the issue. And the prevailing orthodoxy 
which is that raising taxes increases revenue. I, and you think that's what the, the that's what, in my view, that's what the problem is. I mean, we already have a deficit. We already have a deficit. We already have a big debt. The question is, is the best way to deal with that debt cutting taxes, increasing growth, or is the best way of dealing with that debt raising taxes? Now, my view is raising taxes is counterproductive. It's not actually going to lead to reducing debt in five years' time, but that, my view, is not shared by this broader orthodoxy. That's, that's the issue. You mentioned this in your article about the corporation tax, but just to be clear, are you saying you don't think that that's basically abandoning the, the corporation tax rises? And the OBR said that it would cost a certain amount of money. Are you saying they exaggerated how much it would cost? Or are you saying that you believe that if taxes are being kept low, that would have created so much growth, that that would have actually generated more money than what you might theoretically have got from a tax rise? But that, those are both the same points, which is the, the forecasting is not dynamic enough about the impact of keeping corporation tax low. That essentially, the forecasting process undervalues measures that drive economic growth. And it overvalues raising taxes as a way of generating revenue because it doesn't take into account the long-term impact of having big government, more regulation, high taxes, which ultimately slows growth in our economy. And we can see from what's happened over the past decade or so that you know, we've got the highest rate of taxes now for 70 years and we can see what the projected levels of growth are. So people have got to answer the question, why, why is there such low growth? In your article, as was just to conclude this interview, you talk about how your husband ultimately told you this was going to be an awful campaign. He's very wise, campaign. my <laughs> he's, a bit of a, he's a bit of a soothsayer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, a psychic career perhaps awaits. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Do, do you he's better at forecasting than a lot of people. Do you regret going for prime minister? No, I don't. I don't regret it. And would you want to be prime minister again? No. <laughs> Are you, you, I thought you were a nervous and nervous sort of person. I think <laughs> I definitely want to be part of you know, promoting a pro-growth agenda. You know, I definitely want to carry on as a MP. I'm, you know, I'm positive about the future of Britain. I'm positive about the future of the Conservative Party. I think we need to start building more of a, you know, a strong intellectual base. But I'm not uh, desperate to get back into number 10, no. And Rishi Sunak, you'll be supporting him? I will be supporting him. Thank you, Liz Trust, for your time today.